three layers. Imagine like a seven layer, or let's just go with a three layer <laughs> dip. Imagine a seven layer dip. Okay, I was gonna say a seven layer cake. Four of the then, layers, and anyway. then you had a dip with three layers. Who's asking who first? Is it recording? It is, just so that we can have something in case there's anything interesting that we talk about <laughs> or make fun of each other. Well, I just want to disclaim that I'm sick, so don't judge me for my sickly voice this episode. Thanks for joining us. This is episode seven of I Should Know This with Ellie and Joey, where we talk about topics that we should know, Well, we get quiz about topics that we should know, and then are responsible for answering them, and then we fact check at the end. Yeah. Is that the quick elevator pitch? That's a really good elevator pitch. Well, part of it was. I also think there's a slight irony to the fact that we were just talking about viral and bacterial infections, and then I got sick. I think that's true. (laughs) Who asked you first? I definitely asked you first last time. So I'm responsible for asking you first this time. You are so responsible. All right. We are going to talk about something that I think you should know. Mm. And it was a topic that we kind of touched on a couple weeks ago or maybe a week ago. Oh, no. If if this is what I think it is, I don't know the answer. So my topic for today is about your culture, something you should know very well. Mm. Elise is Chilean, for those that don't know. Born and raised. Well, what is the the famous drink that you guys have? Uh, Pisco sour. There you go. So I'm going to ask you about pisco. Tell me about what it is, what it's made of, what it tastes like, whether they were the first ones to invent it. what you can make with it besides pisco sours and any other cool things that one Chilean should know. Oh, geez. I actually think that I visited a Capel factory when I was in Chile with my parents, and I don't really know if I made that up or not. But Capel is a brand of pisco, and pisco is like a clear liquor that I guess the closest thing I would compare, it's like somewhere in between rum and vodka, and it's made from grapes, um, which makes sense that they would make it then in Chile because they can grow lots of grapes there. But what makes it different from wine then? Uh, okay. I don't know. It's we'll find out. distilled from grapes. Distilled. Okay. That's, that's what makes it different. Okay. If that is in fact true. Well, liquor is so different than, than wine, I feel like. It is. Okay. Do you know what the proof is generally? It's it's like something like 16% alcohol by volume. Okay. So that's like 32. Okay. Because you double it. Oh, really? The proof? Yeah. Oh, that's a really clever oh trick. God. So when it's 100 proof it's 50 percent 80 proof it's 40 percent yeah well okay so repeat the question you wanted to know about pisco's history so i mean what does it taste like does it taste like grapes or does it taste i mean i actually don't remember having pisco neat people i feel like people don't drink it neat so it definitely is a mixer yeah it's always a mixer and a pisco sour is like exactly what it sounds like like it's it's very similar to a whiskey sour or you know so what makes a pisco sour the biggest thing that i think makes it different than like a whiskey sour or those other sour drinks like a margarita is that you use egg whites in it so it adds like this uh thickness to it that i think is really nice um but it's lemons pisco sugar and egg whites okay are the egg whites then shaken (laughs) to give like a foamy characteristic to them yeah you blend everything or i guess you can like cocktail shake it like a margarita what other drinks can you make besides a pisco sour with pisco the only other drink that i know of is called piscola (laughs) it's Pisco with Coca-Cola. Ooh. It's like a, <laughs> I feel like it's a really college drink. I don't know that they make I like I don't know what else. I'm sure there are other nice things that they make with Pisco, but I'm I'm failing. I'm just gonna ask for a Piscola next time I'm I'm down there. They're just gonna look at you like you're crazy. What about where it comes from? Whether they were the were they the first ones to make it, or was it another neighboring country, maybe? I think it was like the indigenous people. So like when you say that it often bridges into like Bolivia and Peru for 
Chile. So I know that they were the ones that first drank it. And there was this like, I could be making this up, but there was this like story that they would drink Pisco before they went into battle so that they would look like crazy and scary to the like colonizers. So Pisco makes you look hideous. No. It ages you. No. I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. Maybe that was another drink that they had. And now I'm going to have to double check that that's right. Well, if you missed our last episode on collagen, that's more about anti-aging. If you haven't heard it, please go back. Wait, why do you bring that up? Because aging, anti-aging. But I didn't say anything about aging. Well, I was talking about aging and looking hideous as you get older. Oh, Joey. I was answering the question. You weren't even listening. Okay, so let's talk about, well, was that everything on the history? That's all I know on the history. I don't know much more. So is it one of your favorite drinks or is it just something that you feel obliged to have? Um, so whenever I see it on a menu, like on a drink menu, I'm immediately drawn to it because it's not super common. And I think it just reminds me of home. It doesn't have a lot of aftertaste. It's pretty mild. Like it's it's a good mixer in that way. So it's also just like a nice, it's a nice way to make things alcoholic, I guess. And it's pretty strong. So like you don't need a lot of it in order to feel a buzz. And I'm sure that it's lesser known that it would be a little bit cheaper maybe. Mm. I don't know because it must cost money to import it. But we've had that bottle that I got at a liquor store in New York for a long time. And now it's much more common to be able to find it. But in the past, like you couldn't get it in the US. Sure. You would have to go to like, um, I don't know, like a really big city to get it. Like New York. Yeah. <laughs> but I always live in New York. So. <laughs> All right. So drop the bomb. Um, drop the hammer. Okay. Pregúntame. Okay. I have a few different things I could ask you about. If you can stick to one, that would be phenomenal. Um, and you know what they say, the harder the better. That's what she said. We were just watching the office okay my question is kind of jumping off of the collagen um question but it's not only because it has to do with skin great so i was wondering like if you could kind of explain tattoos and how and where there's how are they like permanent and where are they sitting and like why is it that you can't like scratch them off and there's this thing um on true crime like (laughs) is that a podcast no no no. just like true true crime stories and stuff where tattoos will identify people a lot of the time because even if their body is burned oftentimes they can still like find traces of a tattoo and to me that must mean that it's really deep but at the same time like it feels like your skin is still a little bit raised from tattoos and like it seems like it's so close to the surface so it's very funny because back in long beach when i was out there this woman that you know is reputable she knows a lot about the skin she decided to do research on tattoos and talk about them but yet she has none. So it was very interesting hearing what she was saying because it was very skewed coming from a person that actually has some, yourself and myself, and coming from the, the science background, I guess I could say we, we should know a little bit more than we do. I think it's been understudied. You know, it's, there hasn't been a lot of research. I mean, everybody knows how a tattoo goes into the skin, but then they don't really know its impact, etc. So basically you have three layers. Imagine like a, a seven layer, or let's just go with a three layer <laughs> dipping. Imagine a seven layer dip. Okay, I was going to say a seven layer cake and then layers and then you had a dip with three layers that's just like your skin sometimes wait i'm just gonna interject really quick sometimes your metaphors remind me of the dad from my big fat greek wedding when he's like let me tell you how this word that come from the greek word you know what i'm talking about i still haven't seen that movie i thought I've you seen saw parts it, of it and you didn't like it i've seen parts of it we're watching and I it. Don't like it we're watching it so imagine a three-layer dip right where you have the base layer then the top layer or let's say the base layer you have the middle layer and then you have the top layer so use that base layer 
is the thickest. That middle layer is a little bit thinner and that top layer is super thin. So that top layer is called, called the stratum corneum. That's the, the very top of your skin. That's what is in contact with the world. Then just below that is the epidermis and then below that is the dermis. And the dermis is where, you know, the tattoo actually goes into. It's where the needle penetrates into. And the whole idea is that you're taking this ink, you know, and the ink is essentially solid. It's not like watercolor where it's uh, an aqueous based liquid. So it's not, you know, soluble in water. So they're actually insoluble. So it's like taking particles. Imagine mixing dirt and water. It's kind of like that. But imagine having dirt that was brown or red or black, you know, whatever colors that you want. Mm -hmm. So you're basically taking this tattoo pen, tattoo gun. Needle. I think it's a tattoo gun. So you take the <laughs> tattoo gun, right? And then they, they load it up with this ink and then they take that ink and then they force it into the dermis. Now, some people, their body doesn't respond super well to it and it tries to fight it, which is why you can get inflammation, etc. But when it's done right and when your body responds right, those molecules, they're too big for your body to engulf them. So that's kind of how laser treatment works. Because what you're doing is you're basically blasting those giant particles into much tinier ones that your body can actually eat, absorb, and then poop out like the cells. <laughs> Maybe, maybe you do too. I don't know. I do know. But so that's basically how a tattoo works is you're, you're taking that ink and then you're loading up the dermis and the dermis, those cells stay, but your epidermis, your stratum corneum, that gets shedded, you know, every couple of weeks or every few days, depending on which part of your body it's coming that's from. That's so interesting. So do you know any of the history of tattoos? Well, so just to talk about that shedding. So, I mean, when you get a tattoo on, let's say your, your bicep or on your thigh or something like that, that's going to last a while because that skin doesn't shed so frequently but you do the palm of your hand the inside of your lip the bottom of your feet like the bottom that sheds so frequently that in a couple years it's gone even though the molecules are supposed to be in the dermis well because i mean that skin is just renewing so much more uh rapidly because it has to right yeah but i thought you said that only the top two layers renew well i mean so the, all your cells renew oh. but you know the the dermis is the has a long the long most the longest longevity longest well, life span well, well edit that to sound eloquent. <laughs> we'll see. Um, okay. And did you know any of the history of it? So like, the, I guess, what did what did they even use for ink when they were first doing tattoos? I mean, they probably just fell on a needle that loaded up <laughs> with ink and they said, what? We could make a tattoo out of this? Um, I mean, I know that it goes back to a lot of it goes back to the Jap Japanese needlepoint, you know, where or the stick and poke, sorry, needlepoint. Like knitting. I know. Um, <laughs> no, so the, the Japanese started it with the stick and poke. But I thought like tribal groups in like the Amazon and stuff have tattooing. I don't know the answer to that. So maybe you know more than I do about it. Oh, okay. I think what we know of nowadays as tattooing is done very much in like a Japanese style in terms of like they were the, the first innovators for tattooing. Sure. But then, I don't know, I don't think they, they were the first one. So talking to the point that you're you're talking about true crime and how they can trace it back. So for example, I have a lot of tattoos on my left side of my body. So some of that ink is going to travel into your bloodstream. Some of the ink is going to transport up to other parts of your body. So you actually know that I had tattoos on the left side of my body because if you ever have to cut me open, hopefully I'm dead. And you and you check out my lymph nodes, you're going to find that it's darker. It's going to have some black, you know, particles in it. But my right sign will basically be clean of it. I mean, I do have a couple on my right, but... Oh, so it stays in your lymph nodes? Ink does? So, I mean, some of it will collect there. I mean, think about it. Your body's trying to fight these things. And I mean, all the ink that's getting deposited into your skin, some of the particles 
particles are really small. Some of them are a little bit larger. So the large ones are the ones that stay. Yeah. But then the smaller ones, they can they can move around. I mean, this is only when you first get the tattoo. You know, once but it starts to heal. But then it's gonna stay in your lymph nodes forever. The small. Yeah, they'll just stay there forever. So you actually have tattoos on your skin and on your lymph nodes. Perfect. And I guess more than on. <laughs> okay. Cool. I would say put sunscreen on your tattoos. Take care of them. Keep them hydrated. Keep them out of the sun. I mean, you should be putting sunscreen on your whole body, not just your tattoos. Okay, but I mean, if you want your tattoo the lo- the dopest, the longest, that's what you do. Yeah, if you want your face to look the dopest, the longest, that's what you should do too. Or you could just use anti-aging creams <laughs> or and both. restructure it with collagen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So do you want a fact check? I think we're ready for the fact check. Alrighty. Okay, so spoiler alert, I haven't found the drink that actually was claimed to be what the natives drank to look crazy when they were going into war. It wasn't Pisco, so I totally made that up. Nice. But it it was originated in Peru. Um, There's actually a place in Peru called Pisco. No way. But they don't actually make it there anymore, I don't think. Um, Who makes it better, though? I think Peru. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only saying that because I think they're a little bit more restricted. So like it is made from grape, but Peru, like it'll be called a different type of Pisco based on the grape that's used. Wow. Okay. That's pretty legit. Yeah. So I'm just going to read the definition off of Wikipedia really quick. Go for it. Pisco is a colorless or yellowish to amber colored brandy produced in winemaking regions of Peru and Chile made by distilling fermented grape juice into a high proof spirit. It was developed by a 16th century span by 16th century Spanish. Spanish settlers as an alternative to orujo or sorry a pumice brandy um i'm saying pumice like pumice stone but it's spelled p-o-m-a-c-e um and that's also like grape like pulp of grape or something okay um and that was previously being imported by spain and it just got really expensive and they were you know in an area that had a really good wine producing climate and earth so that's why they started producing pisco there and it says annual pisco production in 2013 reached 30 million liters in Chile and 9.5 million liters in Peru. But Chile is also the main importer of Pisco from Peru and exports less Pisco than Peru. Interesting. So 34% of the Pisco produced in Peru is exported to Chile. Okay. Um, The history that kind of described it, right? I was trying to find something that described the flavor, but they said it really does depend on the grape um, that's used for it. So it's sometimes um you can get like a very floral flavor from pisco and that's because of the the grape that's used in chile specifically which is the peru that i'm gonna like or sorry (laughs) which is the pisco that i'm gonna talk about because it's the one i know um is only made in two regions of chile and uh they only use they usually use muscat grape um and sometimes they use uh torontel and uh pedro jimenez varieties yeah so joey knows what that means i don't know as much what that means but just grape varietals what they said is it's like muscat type so like pink muscat and muscat of alexandria are very fragrant while pedro jimenez and like moscatel de Asturia and torontel are more subtle pedro jimenez is also import imported from where no import it's in port wine oh from portugal (laughs) it's in port (laughs) 
got it. Um, yeah, and so depending on the like how fancy the pisco is, the the alcohol changes. So pisco corriente or traditional pisco is thirty percent to thirty five percent, so okay. sixty to seventy proof. Okay. So I was like half of that. Well, I saw somewhere I that it said eighty percent. Well, so pisco Sorry, eighty proof, forty percent. Yeah, so pisco especial is thirty five to forty percent, and pisco reservado is forty percent, which would be eighty proof, and then gran pisco is 43% or more. Yeah, I think that covers it. So I didn't find the, uh, I didn't find what? Seven different drinks you can Oh make. no, I have the drink list. Perfect. Okay. Joey's like way ahead of me on finding mixed drinks that have pisco in it. So piscola, fun fact, is is like colloquially, colloquial, colloquially is commonly called <laughs> the national cocktail in Chile. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. And it's just a cocktail prepared mixing Coca-Cola and pisco and then there's like other forms um of pisco obviously there's pisco coffee there's pisco sour fun fact with the pisco sour is that if you get it in the u.s it'll often have like the angostura bitters on the very top and that's the peruvian preparation so in chile you oftentimes you don't see the the bitters oh, okay do you want to list some of the drinks you found there was the chilcano the pisco mojadito there was the piscola which is the roman coke there's el Friday and you have to say what's in them you can't just name them there's infused we're gonna leave a link in the comments in the description below in the show notes below and you can see the drinks if you want to prepare them and then there's algarrobina whoa <laughs> what was that supposed you gotta to roll say? the r a l g a -R -R. yeah but you like swallow your r so know, it doesn't so. sound right <laughs> anyways that's why i left it off yeah there's uh also one of the really popular drinks in chile is called a terremoto which is like earthquake and you get one and if you get another it's called a replica like a replica so it's like the aftershock oh. so that's kind of cool um and that has is that um, what all the kids drinks when they go out i don't think so because it's like a it's like um if i were to compare it to anything it would be uh um what's the one with coconut and pineapple coke and pineapple coconut like, and pineapple yeah like the malibu no but what's the drink called that's like really famous that has that in it rum chata no oh mm -hmm. my god it's such a common drink i can't think of what it is coconut yeah it has like pineapple and coconut in it a pina colada oh okay yeah so i would say uh terremoto is most like a pina colada but i'll leave what's in it in the facts because it's like a long list of stuff but it has pineapple <laughs> That was worth it. It was worth it. Are we good? Yeah, I think. I mean, unless you had any more questions no, about I think Pisco. So. I think we're good. Oh, I also wanted to say that one of the regions that they produce it is in the Atacama. Great. I'm going to be visiting there soon. Exactly. So let's get on to tattoos that everyone cares about. So remember the famous Iceman? No. Oh, the one that they found? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 5,200-year-old 5, mummy with ink. So we're going <laughs> way back. Yeah. That's where they, they've seen it in the earliest of times. Where they, they really start to notate it, though, is with the Egyptians. It really starts with women back in 2000 BC. There was some some talk of it being used for dancing girls, also known as prostitutes. We call them sex workers. Well, whatever they called them back in Egyptian times, they called them dancing girls. Okay. But then there was also talk that with where... So let's go back to the Iceman. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so the Iceman, he had tattoos, but they weren't in the, the artistic sense. They seemed to be a little bit more functional. They were distributed distributed across um, the lower spine, his right knee, his ankle joints. Um, and it suggests that it was used to alleviate joint pain and it was seen as therapeutic just because, you know, those are kind of interesting places to put dots. Like acupuncture. Kind of. So looking forward to, I mean, looking, we're going back, but looking forward from that, that Iceman's era. So these women, and it seems to only be in women, um, it was used mainly as, as they imagine for, for women during their pregnancy um, because they had dots over their abdomen um, and their upper thighs um, on their chest. So it was seen as therapeutic. And then it starts to get, you know, as times evolve, it starts to become a little more artistic. It becomes a more noble sign. You see that across, you know, different cultures. It's a sign of nobility. But then it starts to transition from nobility to, you know, not just plebeians. Well, it goes from <laughs> the, the nobility to them accounting for their they, slaves. Yeah, for who they own. So the slaves. Um, I was so, going to say it's so interesting that the pregnant women had that one. That's like now it's like one of the things that will stop you from getting a tattoo is if you're pregnant. Like no one will give you a tattoo if you're pregnant. Yeah, well, I mean, it's we'll, we'll go into how a tattoo works, but this is some of the history of it. Okay. Um, but, you know, they went from the dotted patterns to more of lines and then diamonds. And that's how it started to become a little more artistic. So it was purely functional for a very long time. Yeah, exactly. And then it, it went to more of the nobility thing. And then it transitioned eventually to being an art form more than anything else, because you have things like acupuncture, you have all these other ways of, of providing therapy. So let's go into how a tattoo works. Wait, I have a little bit more questions on the history. Go for it. Do you, did you find out when they started doing it in Japan? So the history goes back quite a bit. There's a lot. I think what I'd rather do is is leave the link because they go into the different cultures. So Oh, okay. So it's with, happening in multiple places. So they start with China, then they go to Greece and Rome, India, Indonesia, um, Japan. So for Japan, it was 300 AD. Um, and then between 1603 and 1800s, um, it became like a subculture. So, I mean, there's just, there's an extensive mm -hmm. okay. history to this. And I don't want to... No worries. Put everyone to sleep. I, I mean, I find it interesting, but I get that it can go on too, too long. So traditionally, we're going way back, tattooing involved rubbing pigments into cuts. So I guess tattoos Yeesh. weren't as pretty as they could have been. Um, so let's let's get technical for a second. It involves the placement of pigment into the skin's dermis, which is that that layer below the, the epidermis. Layer. It's the layer of dermal tissue underlying the epidermis. After the injection, pigment is dispersed throughout a homogenized damaged layer down through the epidermis and upper epidermis, um, and both of which the presence of foreign material activates the immune system's phagocytes, which are the white blood cells, to engulf the pigment's particles. As healing proceeds, the damaged epidermis flakes away, um, while deeper in the skin, the granulation tissue forms, which is later converted into connective tissues by collagen growth. We're going first circle on this. So all that that's saying is that they send the ink all the way down, and then, and then the it, top heals itself. Well, and then your body can't fight it. Those phagocytes cannot engulf it. Oh, because so, it's too big. The upper dermis mens, where the pigment remains trapped within the fibroblast, we talked about that last week, mm. which ultimately concentrates in a layer just below the dermis, epidermis boundary. Its presence there is stable, but in the long term, you know, we're talking like decades, the pigment tends to migrate deeper into the dermis, which which accounts for like that degrading detail. And yeah, where it, like the lines blur a little bit. Exactly. So what was the whole thing with it going to your lymph nodes? So I actually have it here somewhere. And your lymph nodes, that's where 
where you get hormone production or that's um um that's is that white blood cell production that's your immune system immune system yeah okay here we go okay so just to recap some of this the dermis is composed of the collagen fibers that we talked about last week nerves uh-huh. glands blood vessels and more um some of those large ink particles are dispersed into that gel-like matrix of the dermis and others will be gobbled up by the fibroblasts which are the type of dermal cells that play an important part in healing wounds um because tattooing is essentially making thousands of tiny wounds in the skin the body's immune system goes into overdrive it sends special blood cells those macrophages to the site of the tattoo to engulf the foreign ink particles this is part of the body's attempt to clean up and it's also the reason tattoos fade over time but it also plays a part in making tattoos permanent once a macrophage consumes an ink particle it goes back through the lymphatic highway and brings the consumed particles to the liver for excretion but other macrophages don't make it back to the lymph nodes instead these blood cells stay in the dermis and ink particles they've eaten continue to remain visible got it that's interesting so i've also never heard them called macrophages i always call them macrophages like in a like a real american nice <laughs> very very nice so that kind of sums it up cool well, that's interesting so we don't know if it's necessarily doing anything bad in the lymph nodes as it hangs out up there yeah it's more just that so it's an inert material which means that it's not active it's not bioavailable your body's not going to do anything with it it's just sitting there mm-hmm. so there's no real evidence that it's doing good or bad but i mean people could argue that if it's not doing good then it's therefore doing bad because it shouldn't be there mm, you know i guess um did you know did you find out what any of the pigments what they were made of yes yeah, so sorry i skipped over that that's okay so back in the day uh, a dark or black pigment such as soot was introduced into the prickled skin it seemed that brighter colors were largely used in other ancient cultures such as the inuit or are believed to have used the yellow color along with more usual darker pigments and then if i go to so soot is like what charcoal yeah it's basically ash okay you know what i mean yeah no i get it um so like those early tattoos they were obtained directly from nature and were extremely limited in pigment variety in ancient hawaii for example they used nut ash that was blended with coconut oil to produce that that dark ink i mean today there's an unlimited number of colors and shades uh-huh. and fun fact it's not regulated so i mean the industry the tattoo industry self-regulates which is probably better than being regulated but it's just kind of an interesting there was a fact. tattoo shop that i remember being like we only use vegan inks and i was like okay but there was a whole thing in new york a few years back where they were gonna force um tattoo artists to use like you know how they pour it from a larger container into a little pod that they then stick their needle into they were gonna force them to use like pre-sealed pods and they like petitioned and fought against it and then it never passed like it didn't go through because no one that actually worked in the industry wanted that and like there were so many reasons why that wasn't a good idea versus the system that they have now well i mean and oh sorry i I was just gonna say that it doesn't make any sense because that that pod gets filled with air first right obviously and then you fill it with the liquid and all the liquid that's in contact with the side of the pod never comes in contact with the needles so i mean no matter whether it's already open to the air or then you then open it to the air it wouldn't make much difference unless you're talking about something that was already filled with like the color and then sealed but i mean then you're still having i don't know the details i could definitely look it up but i was gonna say that there's this really interesting article well, i don't know if it was an article actually but i remember hearing that um that they were recommending kids be brought to tattoo shops with piercers to get their ears done and like they were pushing against kids going to like players or to the mall to get it done because the way that this is totally going off on a tangent but the way that uh you're getting pierced when you're at a tattoo shop or at a piercing 
place where that's where they specifically do that is it's actually a cut. It's not like a puncture where skin is taken away and your body can heal better when it's a cut versus when an entire piece is taken out. But with the, the guns that they use for piercing at like the mall, those actually take a little piece of your skin away and they're harder to like aim and everything in terms of how they're done. So that's interesting, right? All right. Well, hope you enjoyed this episode of I Should Know This with Joey and Ellie. Fill out the Google form if you have any questions you might want to ask. Leave any feedback in that Google form. Check out the notes in the show notes for all the fact checks on this. And we will see you in the next episode. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.